As we continue to arrive here, in the bigger sense of the word, we're arriving here, we've been arriving here to the retreat for a few days now, but we're really arriving here, I think. You know, really looking deeply into what that means to be here, be here now, be here now. That was the name of the Ram Dass's book back in the 60s. I think he was on to something, be here now. So as we continue to arrive here tonight, I want to explore the, which is actually the first foundation of mindfulness, the mindfulness of the body. We're not going in order. First foundation is body. Second foundation is feeling. We talk about, talked about that this morning, a vedna, of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. The third foundation being the mindfulness of the mind, which is very much what we've been examining in terms of the, the attitude of mind, the quality of consciousness. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness is actually mindfulness of the Dharma or qualities of, of consciousness, of mind, that we begin to examine the actual mechanisms and workings of how to turn the mind towards freedom and away from suffering in the fourth foundation. So exploring a little bit more of these foundations of mindfulness, since the key uh, practice for us is this practice of mindfulness or awareness, uh, paying attention to our experience, the conditions that are arising and passing in our mind and our body, and being aware of this, knowing this for deeper understanding into the nature of things. So again, story from my um, fall retreat at the Insight Meditation Society when I was teaching there. Uh, another yogi that I was working with in an interview, he came in one day, and he was talking about the, this in the middle of the retreat, he was talking about things that were really important to him in his life. And yet he noticed how his mind just kept drifting off. You know, he, he felt a sense of what was important, but then he would just drift away and just daydream. You know, just not really able to stay connected to what he valued. And then he said, well, I probably should bring my mind back, you know. And I said, well, do you actually want to be here? Do you want to be here? Because he's just, you know, daydreaming and drifting and maybe bring my mind back. And I said, do you really want to be here? And it kind of startled him when I asked him that question. Because that's really the fundamental question. Do we want to be here? And I think that until we actually have some sense of connection with that answer of, yes, I do want to be here, we may not actually employ the strategies that are going to help that to happen that are actually going to bring about the transformation of our consciousness, of those forces of mind that we've been exploring, the forces of greed and hatred and confusion. Those are powerful forces. We know that. We're looking at that here. These forces that we get carried away. It seems as if we get carried away through the identification with our mind, with our stories, with our fantasies, our plans, our ideas, our beliefs, our views, and we just, it's like a stream, mind stream, we just go away. And so when we make a commitment or have an intention to be here, that intention is actually countering those forces of mind. And it takes a certain degree of willingness, or will, to counter those forces. Yes, I, I'm going to come back. I'm going to be back. I want to be back here. And so I think we do need to have some sense before we can really fully engage in these practices that we want to be here. And yet we all know that that's not... <laughs> it's not... How to say... We're ambivalent. <laughs> 
there's a certain ambivalence about that because of what it really requires for us to be here, to really fully be in contact with life as it's manifesting is challenging. You know, this morning we were looking at the pleasant and the unpleasant and the neutral, the feeling tone. And, you know, when we start looking at that, we actually see how much of our experience is unpleasant. And different degrees of unpleasantness. And so when we say, I want to be here, it means, okay, I'm going to be here with that too. I'm going to be here with the unpleasantness. Not just the pleasantness. We don't get to be here just with the pleasantness, you know, as much as we'd like to. Or we'd like to kind of manipulate reality in such a way so that it is pleasant more of the time, or all of the time would be ideal, wouldn't it? But that isn't the way of things. That isn't the nature of things. All things that arise are pleasant, unpleasant, somewhere in between, neutral, on that whole range, that whole spectrum. So as we continue to arrive here, arrive home to our home, our natural home, we need to, we need to look at all those Obstacles, really, that keep us from being here. And the Buddha, when I was reading some discourses, I, I, there was this one particular discourse where there was this very interesting tone in the Buddha's uh, message where he was giving some instructions and he said, if you would like, you could follow this. Now, if you'd like to, here's a way. You know, not like, you need to follow this in order to get free. It's like, here, if, if you'd like, and if you don't want, that's fine too. It's like this, this invitation. If you want it, if you don't want it, that's fine too. So this putting out, this giving us the map, giving us the path, saying, yes, you can follow it, but it's, I don't have an investment. I'm not grasping onto whether you follow the map or not, you know? That lovely kind of, if you like, if you like. So we're given the invitation, and then it's up to us to decide if we want to follow it, if we want to walk down that path or not. So we're exploring these ways that take us away, these forces of mind, this grasping, grasping both the pulling towards the things that we want and the pushing away of the things that we don't want, and then the confusion that arises around not knowing what we want or whether we want it or who we are or what's going on and kind of a, a falling asleep. Part of the, the confusion, we also fall asleep. We disconnect from the way things are. These are very strong forces, and this um, uh, from uh, Shantideva, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. I, I really like this. I read it often because I think it really um, talks about this power in the mind. He says, um, "In this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harms as the miseries of the deepest hell which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my mind." the miseries of the deepest hell that can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my own mind. But if the elephant of my mind is firmly bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness, all fears will cease to exist, and all virtues will come into my hand. All fears will cease to exist and all virtues, all these qualities of the awakened mind will come into my hand. This is, the, this is the invitation for us. So the first foundation of mindfulness that the Buddha directs us to is the foundation of body. So in a way, we need to get in our body before we can do the practice. It's like that's the first touchstone. That's the first point. Like get here. And then there's more we can investigate. We can investigate the feeling. We can investigate mind. We can investigate the dharma. But we've got to get here in our body. And so we have practices, and these practices have been laid out for us. You know, one of the ways the Buddha talks about a mindfulness of the body is the uh, breath, 
coming into contact with the breath in the body. The other is the postures, our, our sitting and standing and walking and lying down. It talks about activities, how we move, how we are engaged in our activities in our body. And the Buddha says, the mindful attention to the body leads to liberation. Mindful attention to the body leads to liberation. And I want to read this particular piece from one of the discourses. I read it last year, too, but I feel that it, I love, I read it again just before I came in to the talk, and I love, I love it. This kind of a quality of, ah, it's, there's some, you know, hearing the words of the Buddha, there's a certain, for me at least, a certain deliciousness. And so I just want to read this because I think it really points to the simplicity, really the simplicity of our practice in the case of mindfulness of the body, which really is in some ways our very basic practice that we do here. And so the Buddha said, And how is mindfulness immersed in the body developed? How is it pursued so as to be of great fruit and great benefit? How do we do it? so that it leads to liberation. So there's these three, three parts that the Buddha refers to. First, he says, there is a case where a practitioner, having gone to the wilderness, to the shade of a tree or to an empty building, or here, this empty building that we're in, sits down, folding his legs crosswise, holding his body erect, and setting mindfulness to the fore. This is what we do. Always mindful, he breathes in. Mindful, he breathes out. Breathing in long, he discerns that he is breathing in long. Discerns or knows, knows the difference between a long breath and a short breath. Or breathing out long, he discerns that he's breathing out long. Or breathing in short, he discerns he's breathing in short. Breathing out, he discerns he's breathing out a short breath. So this knowing, just a simple mindfulness or knowing quality, He trains himself to breathe in sensitive to the entire body and to breathe out sensitive to the entire body. So how does that impact? How does that feel? What's the the sense of that breathing as we breathe? He trains himself to breathe in calming the breath and to breathe out calming the breath. And he remains thus heedful, ardent, and resolute. So a certain determination to that. And, and then here's, this is um, also a piece that's interesting. Any memories and resolves related to the household life are abandoned. So what does that mean for us as practitioners? Here he's talking to a monk, but what it really means, at least the way I interpret it, is there's a letting go of the world for a, temp- for a time, for a temporary time, where we're actually disengaging from those thoughts of the past, of our home, of our relationships, of things that are going on. There's the way we're not getting caught up in all of that so that we come deeper into our meditation, our body, our sensations, our emotions, our feelings. We see things for what they are. Thoughts are thoughts. Emotions are emotions. Sensations are sensations. It doesn't mean that we reject those thoughts, but it means we're not getting caught up and lost in those thoughts. We're, we're clearing our attachments, clearing those ways that we get get we grasp and get caught. And with their abandoning, his mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified and centered. This is how a monk develops mindfulness immersed in the body. So just starting first with the breath, a simple practice of breath. And sometimes we can use the breath as a primary object in the meditation, and sometimes the breath can be a support for us when we start to get dispersed or lost. We can come back. We always have our breath. And for me, over the years, my breath has become even more precious to me as a resource when I'm getting caught in the energized or reactive or or caught up in my thoughts. I can just take that breath, as we've been doing here sometimes, just grounding back into the breath, the body, the belly. It's a way to grounding myself back. 
So talking about the breath, and then the Buddha moves on to the posture. He says, furthermore, when walking, the practitioner knows that she is walking. When standing, she knows that she is standing. When sitting, she knows that she is sitting. When lying down, she knows that she is lying down. So simple. Or however her body is disposed, that is how she discerns it. And as she remains, thus heedful, ardent, resolute, any memories or resolves related to the household life are abandoned. They're let go of. We're not holding on to all of that now for this time of our, of our retreat. And with their abandoning, her mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified and centered. This is how a monk develops mindfulness immersed in the body. And then the last one, the activities... Furthermore, when going forward and returning, she makes herself fully alert when looking toward or looking away, when bending or extending her limbs, when carrying her, her cloak, uh, when eating, drinking, chewing, savoring, when urinating, when defecating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and remaining silent, she makes herself fully alert. Our mindfulness practice. And then as we let go of the mind, these these thoughts and memories and plans of our worldly life, our mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified and centered. This is how a practitioner develops mindfulness immersed in the body. So for all, For those of you who have been involved in this particular insight practice, here are our instructions. We always come back to these simple instructions of mindfulness of body, through breath and through posture, how we're standing, walking, sitting, lying down, how we're engaged in our activities. For me, I love the simplicity of the practice. I'm a simple person, I have a simple mind, and so I need simple instructions. And I can relate to that. Okay, I know how to do that. (laughs) It's not too complex. And so that's what carries me in this practice. So maybe right now, as you're sitting and listening and here, just noticing what is happening for you. What's the relationship to your body now? Is there... Is there some sense of connection? Today, when we were doing the inquiry, I mentioned about the possibility of having 50% of our attention in the body and 50% of our attention in the content of the words. So in a way, we're not really abandoning this connection with our body and our center and our, how we're being touched, what's being moved, our heart, our bellies. There's a sense of, yeah, I'm here. I'm here listening now. So just kind of checking that for yourself. You know, seeing how are you listening now. Or maybe notice if you're actually not listening. <laughs> you know, maybe you just went off for about, you know, 10 minutes or whatever. That's, it's okay. There's no right or wrong. We're not judging it. We just want to know. We just want to see, well, what is happening here? If I have the interest, if I have the intention to be here, this is my practice. To notice when I go off, to notice when I get lost, and see if I can ah, settle back here again. Mm, Okay, back here again. And then opening to what's here, how it is, how is it here. And when we do this, Sometimes we also need to notice how are we actually paying attention. Because when we pay attention to the body, sometimes, and you may may have to kind of look to see how this is for you, but sometimes it can seem like we're observing or we're aware from our head. Somehow that the awareness is in our head, and then we're looking at our body, or we're looking at our thoughts, or we're looking at our um, emotions, or we're listening to the sounds, but there can be some kind of gap, distance, like there's the awareness, and then there's the object of what it is we're aware of. 
And there's in that there can be an identification with I am the observer. I'm the one observing these objects of my consciousness, of my body and the sights and the sounds and all that. But there's this, this can be a sense of a separation. And the Buddha actually addresses this, and there's one um, lovely uh, simile that the Buddha uses to actually talk about how to allow the awareness to actually mingle with the sensations. It's like the awareness isn't separate. There's not like an observer of the objects of awareness, but there's a mingling, and I love that word, the mingling of the awareness with the sensations. And the Buddha says... Just as a skilled bathman heaps bath powder in a, mental ba- a metal basin and sprinkling it gradually with water, kneads it till the moisture wets his ball of bath powder, soaks it, and pervades it inside and out. In this way, awareness fills this body so there is no part of his or her whole body unpervaded with awareness of sensations." This is how a practitioner develops mindfulness of a body, of the body. So you get a sense of that kind of that that um, kneading the bath powder till it's soaked and pervaded with the water. And this, so there's no separation between the bath powder and the water. It's all kneaded together. Or another image I have is like when we have a dry cloth, and we put the dry cloth into a bucket of water. And the, the, the cloth just soaks up all the moisture, so it's a wet cloth. But you can't really tell where the water is and where the cloth is. It's just all mingled together. And so in the same way, this is how we become mindful of our body, and body also includes sensations. Well, body is sensations, really. How else do we know the body? Through, through the sounds and the sights and the taste, the smell and the touch, the feel, the sensations. And we talk about emotions, it's also sensations. Emotions, we feel emotions in the body as maybe a tightness in the belly and a tightness in the heart and heat in the body and um, different vibrations and energies moving through. When we start to break those emotions down, we can actually start to feel what's moving through the body. There are certain, certainly can be stories or mental images and thoughts connected to the emotions. But we can also, as we start to drop the awareness more fully in the body, we can feel the emotional life moving through. Kind of, kind of like weather. Sometimes it's stormy, sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it's calm, sometimes it's windy. And we can feel all that when we get sensitive, moving in our body. So we mingle. It's like the, 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 when we say mindf- mindfulness, mind is full of the body. Mind and, mind and body become unified. Rather than oftentimes our experience is that the mind is back home, thinking about somebody who I had a fight with, and my body is here at Gaia House, or my mind is fantasizing about being um, somewhere where it's warm and sunny on the Greek islands or something, but my body is here, oftentimes we can, are, we're just split. Our mind and body aren't unified at all. There's not really a sense of alignment at all. And so with the meditation, we're starting to bring the mind and the body in one place. We're here as an alignment with our energy. That's the knowing where we are. I might be thinking about the Greek islands, but I know I'm sitting at Gaia House. <laughs> I'm not um, deluding myself. You know, I mean, certainly I do at times because it, you know, there's just sort of like, yeah, yeah, I'd rather be where it's warm. There might be that, you know, some t- moments of forgetting, but then that kind of realignment again. Oh, yeah, I'm here. This is the reality here and now. Thich Nhat Hanh says this is like a child when we align this, our mind and body. It's like a child who returns home after a long journey. And we come back home here. And here may not be what we want it to be, 
It may not be so great or pleasant or exciting. It might be rather boring or whatever, but we're here. We're in reality. We're not in some kind of fabricated, imaginary reality of our mind. We're actually here. And what can be revealed from that? What can we learn? What can we understand about the nature of reality when we're here? It's not easy, really, to be in the body. It's not easy to be in our body, and we may have all different kinds of associations for ourselves, whether it's illness or whether it's past history or whether it's just our own uh, habits of, of being in our heads, being in, in, in our intellects. Our intellects may be very well developed, and we never really had much encouragement to feel our body or to be in our body or our heart. You know, there's lots of different reasons that we may not find it easy to be in our body. And also, it's, you know, the body generally is considered dukkha. This body is considered suffering. So it's not necessarily pleasant to be in this body. There was one woman on the retreat at IMS who um, found it very difficult in the standing meditation to feel her, her body because, you know, when we're standing... I mean, we can, you know, do a kind of dissociation where we're just kind of going off and not feeling the body, but there does require a certain amount of attention in the body so that we can stand and feel the connection to the earth, allow the earth to support us. We feel that, uh, um, um, the energy and the support going through the body. So there does need to be some attention. And this one woman, she came into an interview and and she um, said, you know, I hate the standing meditation. I just hate standing meditation because I don't. It makes me feel my body, and I and I have done so much work on my relationship to my body and my body image. And I, when I come and I have to feel my body, it all comes up again. She said, "I've done. I'm, I'm done. I thought I was done with this work, and yet I still feel how much I hate to be in my body." And and it was so hard for her to. Uh, come to the realization, the, the reality that she still had more work to do about how it was to really be in her body. She was frustrated and upset, and so you know, of course, the usual encouragement is just to keep staying with it, stay with it, see what you can learn, what you can understand about it. So she went back and she did her standing meditation, and then came back to another interview. And she said, wow, she said, you know, I really allowed myself to make contact rather than just, you know, this bouncing off because I hate, I hate it, hate it. And she came back and she said, oh, and I really let my awareness be fully immersed in my body. She said, you know, there actually wasn't that much there. It was more just my idea of how much I hated being in my body. She said it was, the, she said it was a, a tendril of the past a tendril of that past association about her difficulty with her body. She said, it's just not what I thought. But she said, now I know that I'm not done with, with my, my work, but it's just what it is. It's just what it is. She's, she came back to reality rather than that kind of like, you know, I'm done with this, I'm done with this, <laughs> I don't have to do anymore. But actually, she did have more to do with it. So, yeah, it's not so easy for us. We have many, many of us have difficulties through our past uh, experiences, our our past uh, situations with our body. And I think that many of us have some assumptions that we carry, too, about um, really feeling the unpleasantness and the discomfort, whether it's an ache in the, in, the, in the back or knees or whether it's some history we have with our, our bodies through illness or, you know, different, you know, chronic uh, problems with our body um, or any kind of unpleasantness that might arise in the body, the discomfort that it's like, oh, I don't, you know, it takes so much to keep feeling it. It takes so much to keep returning to it. And we just don't want to do it anymore. And I think that there a couple of, there's a couple of assumptions that I think we believe, and it, it's worthwhile to check out to see if they're true or not. 
I think that, and I saw this in myself, is that I, there was some belief that if I really allowed myself to feel the unpleasantness, the discomfort in my body, that it would actually get stronger. That through the attention, that would increase the discomfort. And that I would then get overwhelmed. And I, would, I, I wouldn't have the capacity to be able to actually stay with it. It would actually somehow completely throw me off. I'd lose it somehow. That that pain would get so strong, I couldn't handle it. And somehow, I didn't want to know that about myself, or somehow I couldn't, couldn't hold that self-image that I didn't have the capacity. So some way that I would just split off or cut off or defend against it, push it away, resist it, so I didn't actually have to find out the truth of what actually happened if I allowed the full contact with that. And there can be the ignoring, just ignore it. Oh, it's not happening. And then going into the fantasies and going into the thoughts and going, just finding some way to distract myself. And I've heard that, I've seen this, I think it's something really worth checking out. What is, but what is the truth? What is your capacity? What is the reality if you really allow yourself to touch, to come into contact with the full range of the feeling? and the experience in the body. And here I do also need to say that sometimes there, it is too much. You know, we do reach our limit, whatever that is. You know, for, for, a ten, for awareness or consciousness to stay in contact with pain is very debilitating for long periods of time. And it is too much for consciousness to do that, to, to ask ourselves, I just stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. And sometimes it can just be burning and aching and, and just so immensely painful that we just are we're more caught in struggle and conflict and, and uh, more tension and tightness. That, that, that's not worthwhile. There's not really value in that. And so then the instruction is to back off. Know our limit have a sense of what we can handle and what we can't, not to push and push. and Again, because we're just leading with the mind and with an idea of what we think we ought to be able to do. So, so, it's, so the wisdom says, to as we, as we come into contact with, we get a sense of, well, can I go in more? Do I have more capacity? Let me explore this. And if not, then pull back. In this case, maybe move or shift the posture or get up or walk out or go do something that feels more uplifting, uh, depending on what that pain is. Lie down, rest. Sometimes in, real, in daily life, we may find that we actually have to distract ourselves. And I've worked with people who are in a lot of chronic pain for long periods of time. And sometimes this one woman I work with, she, just, you know, she has to put on a DVD a lot of time because she just has to get away from the immense pain that she's feeling and she feels so guilty about that. I should be able to stay with my pain. I say, put on the DVD. You know, it's really good for you to be able to distract yourself like that. It's too much for consciousness just to stay with it. And so finding that middle way, finding the middle way, and this is, I, I call this a maturity in practice. We start to know how to care for ourselves and how to work with the difficulty that we find in ourselves. We don't always have to go in because sometimes it's just reinforcing more suffering. Sometimes we have to pull back. And that reinforces more freedom and recharges, recharges our resources, gives us more strength. So then we could go back. And so this finding this balance for ourselves in working with the difficulties and the challenges that we find as we come more fully into our body. Particularly for people who have illnesses, chronic illnesses, it takes a tremendous amount of, of, of listening, careful listening. And the listening comes through the contact, that gentle, kind contact with what is, with the reality. So then we can know what to do, how to respond more easily. Sometimes, of course, it's still confusing and we don't know. But there's more likelihood that we may be able to respond as we come into contact 
with that reality of the way things are. But in the insight realm, in the insight, when we talk about insight into this body, into the nature of this body, we see that we cannot keep this body from changing. We can't keep this body in a static way. We can't keep this body in a static um, uh, feeling of ease and comfort and pleasure. It's just not the way it is. Body, Body is dukkha. This body is suffering because from the minute we are born, we are dying. We're, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> this, this is actually, there's a new book out by David Shields. It just came out. It's called, The Thing About Life Is That One Day You'll Be Dead. <laughs> Isn't that a great title? <laughs> And I want to read a couple of excerpts from it because I just, I was so, it was, there was a review in a, in a magazine and I, I, just, I just think it really brings, us, brings it home for us so that we can come, hopefully we can come into a wiser relationship with reality, with the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral conditions that are rising and passing through this experience of our mind and body. So it goes like this. These are just some excerpts. If you could live forever in good health at a particular age, what age would you be? As people get older, their ideal age gets higher. For 18 to 24-year-olds, it's 27. For 25 to 29-year-olds, it's 31. For 40 to 49-year-olds, it's 40. And for people over 64, it's 59. (laughs) Your strength and coordination peak at 19. Now listen to this. Your body is the most flexible until the age 20. After that, joint function steadily declines. Your IQ is highest between 18 and 25. (laughs) Once your brain peaks in size at age 25, it starts shrinking, losing weight and filling with fluid. (laughs) As you age, your responses to stimuli of all kinds become slower and more inaccurate, especially in more complex tasks. At 30, you reach peak bone mass, Your bones are as dense and strong as they'll ever be. In your late 30s, you start losing more bone than you make. By age 35, nearly everyone shows some signs of of, of aging, such as graying hair, wrinkles, less strength, less speed, stiffening in the walls of the central arteries, degeneration of the heart's blood, blood vessels, diminished blood supply to the brain, and elevated blood pressure. In late middle age, the skin in your hands become less sensitive to touch. Your skin cells regenerate less often. The skin weakens and dries. The number of sebaceous glands declines dramatically. And all of the tissues of the skin undergo some change. You get wrinkles and gray hair. And Emerson, the great poet, said, you are being asked to do things, and yet you are not decrepit enough to turn them down. (laughs) You gain weight until age 55, at which point you begin to shed weight, specifically lean tissue, muscle mass, water, and bone. At 60, you've lost 25% of the volume of saliva you normally secrete for food. Emerson again said, "'Tis strange that it's not in vogue to commit harikari, as the Japanese do at age 60. (laughs) Killing yourself. Nature is so insulting in her hints and notices, does not pull you by the sleeve, but pulls out your teeth, tears off your hair in patches, steals your eyesight, twists your face into an ugly mask, in short, puts all... Contumelies, which is um, a harsh language or treatment arising from contempt, upon you 
without in the least abating your zeal to make a good appearance, and all this at the same time that she is molding the new figures around you into wonderful beauties, which of course is only making your plight much worse. When you're very young, your ability to smell is so intense as to be nearly overwhelming, but by the time you're in your 80s, not only has your ability to smell declined significantly, but you yourself no longer even have a distinctive odor. You, you can stop using deodorants. You're vanishing. And the last thing, as we get older, the British poet Henry Reed helpfully observed, as we get older... We do not get any younger. This is, this is, this is the, you know, there's more and more science that's coming out now. Just, and it's just this, we're, we're, we're on our way out. There's nothing, there's nothing we can do about that. And this is from an unknown author who says, a civilization that denies death winds up denying life. And I think we do a very good job at that as a culture, as a civilization. Not in, when I was in India, when I spent many years in India, there wasn't a denial of death. It's, it's, it's part of the whole cycle of the life that is engaged in and observed. Is, there's birth and there's, there's aging and there's sickness and there's death. It's all out there. But I think in our Western civilization, we really are in a great deal of denial about it. This is um, something that was in a newspaper um, some time ago, so I'm not sure how the numbers are here. The obituary pages tell us of the news that we are dying away, while the birth announcements in fine print at the side of the same page informs us of our replacements. But we get no grasp from this of the enormity of the scale. There are eight billion of us on earth, and all eight billion will be dead on schedule. The vast mortality involving something over 70 million each year takes place in relative secrecy. Less than a half a century from now, our replacements will have more than doubled in numbers. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep the secret with such multitudes doing the dying. We will have to give up the notion that death is a catastrophe or detestable or unavoidable or even strange. We will need to learn more about the cycling of life in the rest of the system and more about our connection to the whole process. And I think this is very much what our our Buddhist practice really shows us, brings home to us, is this truth of this existence, which is that all things that arise pass away. This great, noble truth of the way things are, that all things that appear die away. And we can see this in a big scale, or we can see this in a minute scale right here in our meditation, right here and now. These words that are coming out of my mouth, where are they going? Where have they come from? And, and they, just, they just arise and they pass. Or this, this, the meal we had this afternoon, where is it? It's gone. Or all those meditation experiences we had, all the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions, and where is it now? And as my teacher Jack Cornfield said early on, he said, they're all back there with Alexander the Great. You know? They're gone. So we talk about this refreshing, refreshing. It's coming into the insight, into the way things are. That there's nothing at all that we can really hold on to. This whole exploration around grasping. There truly is nothing that we can grasp. It's only the sense that we're grasping. It's only the belief that we're grasping. It's only the view that we're grasping. But in reality, there's no grasping. 
There's nothing here at all. It, everything that has arisen in this moment has already disappeared in a whole new manifest, manifestation has arisen and passed away in an instant. Words can't even touch the magnitude of the impermanent nature of things. And so as we come more fully into the mindfulness of our bodies, we start to feel and sense what's here. We can sense this. We can touch this. Kind of this change, this, this, this changing formations of our thoughts and our images and our feelings and our emotions and our sensations and the sights and the sounds and tastes and smells. and It's all this magnificent display. This display of life. Can we be here for it? Because if we're not, we're living in a very narrow way. We're living in a very small way. And that's what the mind does. The mind defines reality according to its conditioning, its past conditioning. And we can get caught in these very narrow storylines about who I am or what other, who other people are, about what this reality is or what's happening in this reality. But until we start to expand our mind and start to challenge some of those beliefs and those ideas, those, those, those limited views, we can't come into the fullness of this mystery of what's here, this vast and profound existence that we find ourselves in. It's so mysterious. How do we get here? <laughs> and so when we start to let go of the, the grasping, of the, of the holding on to the things we think are going to ma- make a difference in our life or, or pushing away the manipulating of this and that, this and that, start to let go, start to see a little more clearly what that mechanism is and then open up and open up start to feel things differently. This world, this reality, takes on a whole different meaning, a whole different experience. And the mind, our mind, our small, rational, thinking mind has no, can't get nowhere near imagining what it's like. We call this awakened reality or this enlightened reality. Our mind is so small, just thinks in very narrow pathways of this and that, this duality. It's either like this or it's like that. So as we drop out and we touch into something that feels more true in this immediacy of this reality now, we can begin to get out of that box of duality this or that, we break through into something wholly new, wholly fresh. So our practice really is paying attention. Paying attention to the mind, to the body, using the body as our ground, as a foundation, as a way of helping us stay here connected in contact with the objects of our senses, sights, sounds, taste. That's really all there is. You know, really all there are, there are only five senses and thoughts about those five senses. That's all that's really going on. And then the way we fabricate this whole kind of a reality around those five sense experiences... We're only seeing things and hearing things and tasting things and smelling things and touching things. And this whole world comes into some kind of being and we make up all kinds of stories about it. But what's true? So we're questioning. We're questioning, we're exploring. What's true? 
What's real? What's reality? When we're not fabricating, imagining, making up stories. It's great. We have fun making up stories. Stories can be wonderful. I'm making up a great story right now. Yet I think we need to hold it all very lightly. Hold it all very lightly. Because what's true? What's really true? And so that real interest, curiosity, investigation, not letting the mind land anywhere. As my teacher in India would say, don't let the mind land anywhere. Don't let it take root in the soil of consciousness. Don't let anything take root. Let everything be free. Everything express its nature of freedom. Because everything is already free. It's only the mind that fabricates a kind of bondage or fixation. So we allow everything to have its nature of freedom. This is what we're trying to sense into, trying to feel into. Not grasp. (laughs) Just kind of get a sense of can't do it with the mind, our ordinary thinking mind. We have to let go of that, come into something else, which feels like it has something to do with the body, the heart, the belly, this intuition, this something that's not just limited by the small mind. I'll end with this quote from this um, Tibetan master, Zangkapa. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human body is one with great difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiniest splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore, set your aspiration. Make use of every day and night to achieve it. This life you... This life you must know as the tiniest splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Set your aspiration. Make use of every day and night to achieve it. Let's sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.